Welcome everyone to the next edition of the Reimagining Mobility podcast series. I'm here with, here with Bill Rotrammel. He's the director of vehicle at AVL MTI. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Stefan. Um, Pleasure to be here. You've been at FCA, a VP, for many, many years until you came to us, which is a pleasure, obviously. But, but tell me, the transformation and disruption that you have experienced in your career, does that match with what's going on right now with EVs, with ADAS, with all the different topics everybody throws around? Is there anything that you can compare that to in your career, or is this like yet another height? You know, in my career, I've seen obviously a tremendous amount of change. Early on, we were pretty archaic uh, industry, and everything was done with steel and in springs and vacuum and all that stuff. I I was a luckily part of the transition to electronics. Shortly after I got out of college, the revolution happened, and we started controlling vehicles and first of all powertrains with electronics. Yep and the precision level went up markedly. Um, during that time, as chips became cheaper and faster and memory became more capable, obviously the complexity just started to rise and the simple systems we built early on in my career began to become much more complex. Um, I saw that transition shift from being very much engine focused to going to whole powertrain transmission and engine as a mm -hmm. system and then ultimately to the whole vehicle and that got into um, uh, as a benefit for people that did what I did we were already very systems oriented but for instance when analog braking came and then and then um, basically stability control on vehicles that the systems just became more and more systems on a car uh, and the name of the game became who can do a good integration of that system so mm -hmm. um, that the, the complexity was was growing by leaps and bounds. I think, you know, I make an analogy to mobility and what's happened in the last 10 or so years and is accelerating, and change is certainly accelerating everywhere because of technology moving on. Um, but I think my analogy is when I was a kid, I used to go in the store with my mom and the toothpaste aisle had three flavors, right? It was like uh, Arm & Haber baking soda, basically, and then there was Crest and Colgate, and they, all, they were just white. There was a tube that was white stuff came out of it. Now, if you go in the toothpaste aisle, I think there's probably 150 options, everything from what the kids get to what color the stripes are in it. Yeah. Well, vehicles are going the same way. It's no longer... What size engine do I want in my vehicle that has four wheels, but it's what type of vehicle? Is it a truck? Is it an SUV? Is it a sedan? Has it got three wheels? All of those things, but now it's um, completely into what level of systems does it have? Can it partially drive itself? Maybe someday does it fully drive itself? So I, I see that happening, and bottom line is the consumer gets more and more and more cho choices. Yeah. And they can also be powered by electric, powered by gasoline, powered by diesel, combination of electric and any one of those things. So the, the complexity just keeps rising, which gives the customer much more choice. Mm. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately perhaps for where we stand in this, it makes the job of engineering those vehicles and validating, validating them very challenging. I mean, I just wanted to say exactly, is this, you know, is it a good thing that we have more choices? Because I can totally see what you're saying, right? When my wife sends me to the grocery store and says, get me some toothpaste, yes. I know I'm going to call her. It's like, you didn't give me a picture. 
of what I need to get and there's 20 different choices and I know either you and or the kids don't like that or the other, right? So you see that similarly from, let's say, put your old hat on from, from FCA or from an OEM that are we giving the customer too many choices? For AVL as a, as a technology company, it's obviously great. Lots of different technologies, lots of different changes from one to the other, small little modifications. It's a lot of work for us and interesting work. But you see it almost as a bigger challenge than necessary, maybe from your point of view, from an OEM side? I think it is a challenge for the OEM, but it's a, every challenge presents an opportunity. The market will do what the market does. And eventually, people are gonna choose all these different options. And if you don't have them, you're gonna miss part of that market. Mm -hmm. um, especially when you get into younger people who have grown up with lots of technology in their hand, for instance, and they're not really intimidated by a technology the way some older people may be. Um, so I think you have to play in order to stay in the game. Um, it's, it's tough for the OEMs because it's cheaper to make one type of thing and make lots of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't work anymore, and it mm -hmm. hasn't worked since the Model T, really. It's been a <laughs> continuum as you go out. You yeah. know, first cars, they were all black. Yeah. Well, now you got to choose the color, too. Yeah. Um, but I think that, um, you, you know, what we see as we go forward is lots of choices in mobility, and it, it, it even includes the ownership option, you know, and when I went to visit my daughter when she was out of school and lived in San Francisco eight years ago, um, she hadn't owned a car yet, right? She, she had been out of school for, let's say, six or seven years. Mm. When she needed a car to go get groceries or something major, she went up the street and got Zipcar on her phone and got a car for two hours and then got what she needed and came back. Otherwise, mm. it was Uber, Lyft, whatever you do, um, or, you know, just, just walking, obviously. So... That whole issue of mobility, there is just so many choices that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, from a vehicle maker standpoint, if I put on my old OEM hat, um, I was a part of making decisions on what kind of entertain infotainment systems came into mm -hmm. the vehicle. And of mm -hmm. course, the ultimate decision by the OEMs was we have to play with the major cell phone manufacturers and the major software companies, Apple, Google, iPhones, you know, Android phones. and People are so used to that. It's such a part of their life. The car has to play with those devices. That's yeah, a ubiquitous you're, you're fighting transition. You yeah, yeah, from the house to the car to the office and back again, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so what we want it to be for the customer, because there is a lot of complexity in life, is we want it to be as seamless as it can be. And obviously, if you use your phone for nav, you're, you're likely going to use that in your car. Yeah. You know, people use it to walk around the yeah. cities. In, but if they want the same thing. They want something for mayor. Yeah. It has to be transparent. And I've as recently as yesterday seen studies through JD Power and other companies where part of that problem is when there's you know when it doesn't work the way you think it should it reflects on the OEM and the yeah, automaker yeah. they it's like my car doesn't work not my phone doesn't work right. and if if uh, Apple doesn't update on the iPhone your car has to be compatible with that and you have to be fast on your feet to get it there if something yeah. goes wrong yeah. that's what people expect yeah. um, I, I think from the standpoint of an engineering set point, the opportunity in this is that somehow you have to master and, and control this complexity. And, and we're in the beginning of electronics curling, controlling engines, and I was a calibrator. We almost invented our algorithms and did them ad hoc. It was almost seat of the pants. We had a feel for it. 
Now it requires an, a really disciplined system to be able to say, I have to structure this, I have to know the exercises I want to do and do them in a most efficient way mm -hmm. because I have this massive amount of control and software that I have to make sure it works properly. Mm -hmm. And there's still mechanical systems behind it, which some people maybe understate. Um, there's a new term, it's a hot term now, the, the software-defined vehicle, for instance. Well, that's interesting. As an old car guy, I don't ever, I don't really think my decision to buy a car is ever going to be completely based on the software that it can run because I like the car to go fast sometimes or I might like a truck that can haul things. The platform still means a lot to me as a car guy. Sure. But um, the software that drives it is a very, very important part of it. And yeah. um, as we get more sophisticated on avoiding traffic jams, more efficient on ways to get there, and then beyond that, pre-warning to hazards that might be in the road. I mean, I've, I've seen one recently where one of the companies has a contract with a provider to do um, crowdsourcing where they can understand does does the stability system and, and ABS systems actuate, and they can actually say if it's a cold winter day and they're getting a bunch of actuations yeah. on some part of a freeway, maybe there's black ice there, you can get a pre-warning. Yeah, exactly. And in the world of cars that drive themselves, those are going to be very critical information pieces to be able to get people from A to B safely. Right. So, right. If you were to say, we talked a lot about already now about transformation, how things have changed, right? You, you just mentioned a software-defined vehicle. Yeah. That's also at the same time, it's a transformation, it's a disruption at the same time. What, in, in your mind, what are the three biggest transformations or disruptions that you have seen just since you left FCA? Okay. What, what, what do you see as the three major transformation disruptions in the mobility space? Could be how we design things today, you know, more, more simulation, for example, because it's all about speed, right? That's the, the new normal, as I always call it, go fast, get to market fast. Um, but it also could be, you know, ADAS was never as big as before. Now it's a mega trend, electrification, obviously, yeah. certainly in this well, country. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll cut to the chase on yeah. what I think they are. First of all, electrification is playing a big role. Um, I don't personally think it's going to take over the world in short order. Um, we can all guess where are we going to be in 2030, 2040. Um, but electrification is a great answer. Um, when you drive some of the performance vehicles that are full EVs, they're, they're amazingly quick and, and amazingly capable. And quite honestly, there's ways you can control those cars in a more precise fashion than you can an old in, you know, IC-powered vehicle. Mm -hmm. So it's going to play, but it's going to play in a lot of different ways. Um, so I think that's, that's a key element that's going to affect us probably for the next 20 to 40 years as more and more electrification comes into play. I think along with that is the energy storage is where maybe the real revolution may still happen, but the biggest drawback to an EV right now is the energy storage situation. Batteries are expensive and they're not, they don't give you as much range as a full 25 gallon tank of fuel in a typical vehicle. And so that problem will continue to be addressed. I don't see a massive change coming. I think batteries are gonna continue to improve. And I think in some applications, we have fuel cells out there that might be the ultimate answer. They're very expensive and they're complex themselves. So I see some of that really affecting commercial markets where there's a commercial rationale behind it, and that's going to be in play. But we're going to be in change. It makes the engineering job challenging. It's going to continue to be more challenging as we go forward. But again, more options for people and ultimately 
EVs tend to be cleaner vehicles in the big cities and that where you don't have the combustion problem. Mm -hmm. um, when we go beyond that, I get into autonomy. Autonomy is a piece of that. Um, as a former director of safety for a major OEM, I saw a lot of things happen. I'm very aware of the number of people that are injured or we lose lives every year all over the world because of traffic accidents. Mm -hmm. I think we're on the cusp of we can really impact that situation in the next 10 to 15 years in a large way. Um, we're going to have a lot of time where there's certain functions in vehicles that take load off the driver and they may certainly reduce the propensity for accidents. I mean, right now, emergency braking systems is already, the data is pretty strong. They, they eliminate a number of major rear-end accidents yeah. on vehicles that are equipped. And that type of thing will continue to go forward, continue to improve people's driving in a sense, and will continue to they will improve safety as well. Um, when it talked, when you get toward fully taking the load off the driver, I mean, what we see right now is highway pilot, which is a controlled situation on controlled access freeways mainly, but you can almost take the full load off the driver today with some of the leading edge cars that are out there. And I see that becoming more and more entrenched and probably becoming a standard. Maybe it will even get regulated in. Europe's already ahead of the U.S. in mm. doing that. So that's a major change. And I think fundamentally, the situation where you can take load off a driver all the way up to fully driving the vehicle, we're going to see that transitioning happening over the next, let's say, 10 to 20 years, and it's going to accelerate. Mm -hmm. It's an extremely difficult problem to solve. And of course, one of the challenges we face, along with our OEMs, is how do you know those systems are validated? And there's, there's literally endless possibilities for things that can go wrong and situations you have to face. Mm -hmm. Those are the problems that are right ahead of us, immediately ahead of us. And when we figure out how to deal with them through both um, many engineering techniques, much of it being simulation, <laughs> yep. but some of it being testing those most critical situations, we'll, we will get there. Like everything else, you know, the horses are gone now. <laughs> the horse that's carriage took over the world 130 years ago. But, yep. um, you know, the biggest, the biggest uh, problem that I have is as you age, you tend not to think as far forward and you tend to think limited. We're not going to be limited. Yeah. It's going to be amazing, the world we see going forward. Yeah, yeah for sure. So we, we, we talked about the software-defined vehicle. We talked about all those, those challenges you just mentioned, uh, ADAS, EVs. And you mentioned Europe, which is a segue into my maybe last question for you. Europe traditionally has more, let's say, regulations or type of approvals or certifications you've got to pass as an OEM to put a car onto the dealer lot, the car onto the road. You see in the U.S. we need to do more of that too to help advance or set a common ground for all OEMs as it relates to certainly autonomous, right? You just mentioned, how do you test this? When is good, good enough? When is safe, safe enough? When is a car actually safer than a human driver? All of those questions. What is your opinion on that? You, because I know you have been involved with those sorts of things in your yeah, past. Yeah. So what, what is your mindset there? Um, I've, I've been watching Europe closely and I think they're, they have a responsible approach to this. But I also like the US's approach so far as like, let, let the free enterprise system take care for a while of where these technologies are gonna go because mm. it's really hard to know, especially a governmental agency which has to go through rigor in order to get rules you know, promulgated yeah. in that. But I think I think we're close to the point where we need 
more regulation in this area. And I'm not a big fan of regulation for regulation's sake. But, maybe a baseline, but, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we need a baseline, and the the problem is we'll get 50 different answers in 50 different states if we're mm. not if we're not careful, right? Yeah. There is um, Europe has its eye on pedestrian safety in a much bigger way than the U.S. does, just because of their demographics and their cities and that, and and the tightness of the cities. So there are things there that I think we will learn from Europe, but I see regulation being really necessary so we get a standardized approach to this, but the regulation needs to be done with a lot of the input of the technical community, and I believe right now that's the way that it will go and it is starting to progress. Mm. Um, we'll never regulate everything that needs to be there in the way of an automated car, for instance. There are way, way, way too many and too many complicated situations we have to address, but some framework that gives you a responsibility there, I think, we'll see come in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, having been regulated on passive safety, which was some of my past responsibility, there were, you know, the set defined tests that the government made you do. They were responsible. They made the cars much safer, but they didn't know by, you know, by no means did they cover every situation. Sure. Then some third parties like IHS came in. They developed the offset test, which was maybe a more traditional severe injury event was done on behalf of insurance companies. That also drove cars to be safer. And without regulation, it became through the power of of marketing or even shame in some ways if you didn't have a good rating. But mm -hmm. I think that's the way you'll see things happen. Mm -hmm. It's just, as, as everything with, with autonomy, it's it's a much more complex universe to try to define sure. even than, than passive safety, you know. Sure. Last question, in one sentence, if you look at the entire mobility space, I'm talking from trains, planes, automobiles, yeah. everything, what is the most exciting area that you look forward to to see what happens in five years? If you could today jump into a time machine and jump forward five years, what is it the one that you want to see? Do you want to see, are there actually going to be flying cars? Are there actually going to be fuel cell powered passenger vehicles? I don't know, but if you had that one in one sentence, what would it be? I think it's it's related to autonomy because five years i'm not sure we'll see flying cars in five years we may see drones and more drones and things like that but i think um i think we're going to see more and more applications that have the power to actually take vehicles off the road and, and change the model a little bit so it's not always an owner single person in a vehicle type situation okay. which is very typical now but i think when we look at transportation systems around airports or in cities or um even at sports events things like that autonomy will begin to play with commercialized applications where a lot of people can ride on safe devices mm -hmm. which don't need a driver and I think we're going to become a more efficient mobility society as we go forward and I think that's within the, the grasp of the next five years we're going to start seeing some really nice applications okay. of that. So mobility as a service sort of thing. Yeah. All right. Thanks Bill for your time. I appreciate the thank opportunity to talk with you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you and thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Reimagine Mobility Podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend.